first line of that video, scary monsters and fluffy clouds actually uh, were supplied by a gentleman that I sat on a panel with on morality. And uh, uh, in his closing statement, he, he said, well, his faith, referring to to my faith and, and a lot of your faith, uh, faith in, in Christ, uh, that really comes down to a faith where uh, it's basically we are either afraid that we're going to be thrown into a pit with scary monsters, or if we're really good, we get to sit in a fluffy cloud for eternity. And I was, I got to tell you, I was sitting there and I'm like, both those options sound horrible. <laughs> like, give me option three. And I was like thinking about that. And afterwards, uh, after uh, he was available, like I went up to him and I, and, and I said, hey, could I, could I paint a different picture of heaven for you? What I, what I feel uh, is a biblical view of heaven. And and uh, he was busy, and he just really wasn't interested, so I didn't have the opportunity to uh, paint a, uh, a picture of heaven for him. Unfortunately for you, or maybe fortunately, you get to hear it tonight. <laughs> so, so this is basically, if, if given the opportunity, uh, what, what I would have uh, shared with my, my fellow panelists. And uh, basically, I, I think that it's not really his fault that, that that's his view of heaven and hell, right? I mean, I think for, for a lot of us, uh, unfortunately, our faith has uh, been boiled down to a transaction between us and, and a guy named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. And if you say these few magical wor words... That, that you get to go to this, you know, cosmic utopia in the sky. And if you refuse to say the words, you, uh, then you're, you're thrown in the pit. And I get that. I get where he was coming from. But I think it is really uh, separated truly from our true understanding, a true biblical understanding of what heaven really is. And it all starts really with the journey that we've been on for months really going through the whole story of God, the, the gospel. And I introduced a few months ago some symbols to you guys uh, and the story of Israel. And we, we started with the series um, Unresolved. Do you remember that? Where we looked at the unresolved promises of, of uh, Scripture in the Old Testament, beginning with the one given to Adam and Eve at the point of, of betrayal at the point of, of uh, rebellion where, where uh, they were removed out of the ideal existence of Eden. And, but God said, you know what? Even though there's this separation, I will send one who will crush the head of evil. And it, you're, we will be restored someday. And we started that with unresolved, and we looked at a bunch of unresolved uh, promises in the Old Testament. Then we looked at how, uh, how that informed the life of Christ, 
You know, Christ just didn't kind of like fall out of the sky one day, you know, that, that, that he was prophesied that he was the coming Messiah. And then we, on Good Friday, we, we observed the crucifixion and, and the atonement where, where Christ died for our sins and atoned for, for all the brokenness and hurt and pain that we have caused. And then on Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection. And uh, what a cool day was, was that. And what we did was on the resurrection day that we started a new series called Unleashed. And that unleashed the current period that the church is in. It's, it's the church period where we're, we're post-resurrection, but we're pre-infinite love. We're pre the second coming of Christ. Nobody here is dead or there's no zombies here, right? So none of us have assumed room temperature and are in heaven. We're, we're here. This is in that, in the, um, but when the, what we're, what we're going to be looking at tonight is how the second coming or when we um, expire, uh, that we will go uh, to be with our Father in heaven that, and we know that, that God is love and, and God is infinite love. That there's no, there's no beginning, there is no end to his love, and that actually completes the story of Israel. So that, that's the journey that we have been on. So if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, I um, want to start our story in Genesis, and where we, we get an idea um, or kind of a, a picture of really the true ideal state the, the original vision that God had for his creation. And the verse goes, when the, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Now, here's where all those years of Sunday school are going to pay off. All right? Why did they hide? Because they were ashamed. They were ashamed why? They were naked. And, and how did they know they were naked? Or naked? Naked? Okay. Some high school, art high school, Sunday school people, come on. They, they, they ate the fruit. They, they, they ate the, hap, the apple much to the chagrin of Steve Jobs, or maybe to, to the delight. I don't know. But uh, so here we have. But what were they, why were they not hiding? You ever ask that question? The reason, they weren't hiding because of what happened in the previous sentence. They heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. That's pretty freaky, right? Like if I had, just under normal circumstances, Lord God's walking through the garden. You know, I don't care if I had an apple or not. You know, I'm probably ditching into the trees, you know, because that, that, that would be crazy. That would be outside of my normal day, right? Yours too, I would assume. 
Like the, the unbuffered presence of God is just, you know, just kind of walking around in our house or in our, in our, you know, herb garden or something like that. Not herb, but herb garden. And, uh, you know, uh, it would be, you know, in, in our context, a, a frightening experience, but not in theirs. That's not why they hid. Why? Because that's the way it had always been. In fact, I love the... The imagery, actually, right at the beginning, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, that's when God came into the garden. He didn't, he didn't come when it was like 95% humidity and hot and like, you know, nobody wanted to go out. No, I mean, it was this idea of this, this, this enjoyable, normal experience. Like, you know, you see people in your normal relational circles, right, in normal different things. Like, you don't even have to, like, Google calendar them or, 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 or anything like that. It's just norm. You see them, and it would be unusual if, if they weren't there. And this is kind of the picture of the ideal state is this, this unbuffered presence between God and his creation, and them just walking in the garden and talking and, and you know, walking with God and God pointing out the aardvark and saying, look at that. And then like Adam or Eve going, that's kind of weird. And he's like, I know. I did it, though. It's kind of cool. And yeah, I, I can see the aardvark, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. Like this is this, this just beautiful picture of an unbuffered relationship with God. Okay, let's fast forward. Let's get to the current state that we all exist. And I think Paul does a really good job in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12, uh, starting in verse 12, kind of taking us from the current state to basically our state of anticipation. In verse 12, Paul's saying, look, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And the, verse 14, for our purposes this evening, that this is a critical verse. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let me ask you a question. What is the heavenly prize? Is it a cosmic utopia where you are given an unlimited pass to ride whatever crazy ride that, that, is, that has been discovered? Is it, is it, a, is it a place where, uh, like my... Uh, my friend in, in California, she has a real warped kind of view of the heavenly prize. In her heaven, all men will have PMS, have to give birth, and all these kind of like whenever she's kidding, of course, but you like, like whenever she's going through something rough, womanhood wise, she's always like, you in heaven are going to have to experience this. And we're like, whoa, you know, and, you know, and then there was, you know, I remember uh, a story about a kid who, 
who a teacher was talking about about this, you know, cosmic utopia, and, and she said, class, is there any questions? And this little boy raises his hand. He says, yes, are there going to be motorcycles in heaven? And the teacher said, no, I don't think so. And he's like, well, I don't want to go then. What is the heavenly prize? Is it, is it some place where, you know, there's, there's paths of gold and, and pearly gates? That, that, this, that, that, you know, that is overly ornate? Or is it something else? The heavenly prize, we find out, as Paul continues, is this. In verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting for him, waiting him for him to return as our Savior. Paul tells us what heaven is. Jesus tells us again and again through his ministry what heaven is. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That he says we are citizens, those of us who are followers of Christ, of heaven where Jesus lives. And here we have an, uh, an idea and a starting an unfolding of, of the true vision of heaven. And the heavenly prize is, is not, you know, a Kawasaki or, or, you know, men going through, you know, all sorts of misery or, or something like that. But the heavenly prize is bringing us back to the ideal state to, to be with Jesus in an unbuffered relationship and have a right relationship with God and a restored relationship with others. I love this language of citizenship. For those of you who have traveled overseas, what is the number one rule about traveling overseas? Do not lose your passport. Why? Why don't you want to lose your passport? It's your identification. It's your identification that you belong to a certain nation, and you carry with that the rights and the benefits and the protection of that nation. And here, Paul's saying, look, you are citizens of heaven. In other places, he's like, hey, you guys are foreigners here. This is not the end. This is not, your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. I remember one of the most frightening things of my life was when I was in Nigeria, and the Nigerian government took me and, and they put me in, in a holding pen and they took my passport from me and they walked away. I was a man without a country. I was a man without any identity in a foreign place. And it was frightening. And what Paul is trying to communicate here is, hey, you know what? Those of you who are Christians, those of you who are followers of Christ, that, that your identity, your, your passport, your citizenship is in heaven, and that is where Christ lives. And this is our heavenly hope. 
that we will someday be restored back to the ideal state. He continues on in verse 21 where he starts to move us toward really a true biblical vision of heaven. He says, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under control. Here we have this, this idea that, that our brokenness, our hurts, our pains, our anxiety, our depression, all the brokenness in, in this world, all the relational brokenness, all the environmental brokenness will be brought back to its ideal state. John in Revelation, uh, further expands our, our view and picture of heaven in, ver- in chapter 21 in verse 1, starting in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, Now, this is not a city set aside for God's purpose holy. This is an absolutely pure holy city, a city that takes on the attributes of God. The new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So, which is it? Is the ideal state a garden, or is the ideal state a city? It's neither. The ideal state is exactly what the scripture said, that God's home is now among his people in an unbuffered sense, that there will be no separation between the creator and his creation. He will live with them and he will be his people and God himself will be with them. Can you think of any two larger kind of uh, uh, polar opposites than a garden and a city. I'm from Los Angeles. I love Los Angeles, but I just got to say it is one of the ugliest cities known to man. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. It is, it has a lot going for it, but it is ugly. U-G-L-Y, it has no alibi. If there's some, they just paved over everything. And in fact, this is, this is a true story. Gospel truth, if you have you. My neighbor painted his concrete green because he was so tired of just looking at concrete. What, why, how can a garden be the ideal state and how can a city be an ideal state? Because they both had the unbuffered presence of God. 
continues on, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. As I'm reading this, notice the language, notice the imagery is all relational. It's all restoration of relationship. It has very little to do, if anything at all, with the temporal or the physical. In verse 5, it says, And the one who is sitting on the throne, and, and scholars are divided on who this person is. It could be God. It could be an angel. I tend to think it's Jesus, and I'll tell you why in a second. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. My wife says that to me all, this time, all the time because I forget. She's like, write this down. Like, okay. Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, and listen to this. And if those of you have been on this gospel journey with us, this is, this is, this is going to be echoing uh, through what we've been talking about. It is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You remember, that is partly what Jesus said on the cross when it was finished, right? Now he's saying it on the throne. And Jesus said it because David said it. And God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, when he spoke to Moses. Here we are seeing the whole completion of the story of Israel being brought up in infinite love. And then he'll say to all who is thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. And then if you skip down to verse 22, it gets really, really interesting. You guys like church? Eh, all right. You only have to endure this a couple more minutes. Don't worry. Verse 22, this might be really exciting for you. I saw no temple in the city. I saw no church in the city. Isn't that kind of weird? You think of all places, there would be a church in heaven. Nope. But we're told why. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Again, we're being reminded that our current state is not the end, but just a foreshadowing of what we have in the future. And the city had no need of a sun or moon for the for the glory of God illuminated the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will be never closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. There will be no fear, no racism, no bigotry, no hatred because there will be relational wholeness. A lot better than a fluffy cloud, right? 
Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In those last words, you might be sitting there and you're like, aha, there we go. Can't get in unless you said the words and you get your name in the book of life. Let me riddle you this. One question that I'm often asked, and I'm sure you have been asked this question. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? It's a loaded question. Nobody ever asks it because they want to have a relationship with Christ. They ask it because they want you to look small. They want you to look stupid. They want you to look narrow-minded. But what do you do, right? I come up. Is Jesus... The only way to heaven. The whole question is a misnomer. It doesn't make any sense relationally. Let me unpack it this way. Let me take back. Remember what heaven is. Heaven is where Jesus lives, right? Heaven is God's home. That God is living with the people and he's walking with the people and being with the people. And you are asked the question, Is Jesus the only way? I step back to a girl I was dating 20 years ago. Her name was Shannon. Shannon Ray Remington. Sweet girl. I fell in love with this girl, Shannon Ray. We are bound to move to the south, right? And I said, Shannon, I want to marry you. And this is what it means. I want to build a life with you for eternity. I want to build a home with you. I want to build a life. I want to build, I want to travel the world with you. We'll do everything together. We will experience things together that we could never experience alone. Will you become one with me? Imagine this. If she looked at me with her big brown eyes, the color of bark, she says, wow, a home. That sounds awesome. Traveling the world, that sounds awesome. One question, can I experience all of that that you've envisioned without you? What? Fortunately, she didn't say that, and she became Shannon Ray McNeese, and and we've traveled all over the place, and we've had two children, and we still have them, and... uh, and we've, 
we've owned two homes together and we've, we've experienced crazy things. We've laughed and, we, and we've cried together and apart. <laughs> but the point wasn't the institution of marriage. The point wasn't a house. The point wasn't the travel. The point was that we would be bonded together. And to, to say, wow, you know, this heaven thing sounds good. You know, a city and, and, and it's pure and, and, and it's all brought together in this, in this beautiful restoration. But Jesus, do you need to be there? I know you, you prepared the place and everything, but can you just leave the keys under the mat? It doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to say something that has ruffled some feathers all day. If you don't like Jesus, you do not want to go to heaven. Because heaven is heaven, because Jesus is in every brick, in every road, every tree, every image and thing there, that God's infinite love is heaven. And if you can envision a heaven without Jesus, then you are not envisioning heaven at all. Let me take it one more step. Get your rocks ready. Heaven without Jesus is hell. Check it. It's the very essence in biblical definition of hell is the absence of God. When you disconnect Jesus from heaven, you end up with really bad theology. But what, it, what even worse happens is you create questions like, do I need to, uh, do I need Jesus to get to heaven? See, those questions come because we, in our language, and those who came before us who have done so much good have also presented this, hey, all you need to do is say this prayer and you're good. You got your fire insurance. You don't have to get thrown in the pit with scary monsters. You get to go to the fluffy, happy place, cloud, cosmic, utopia, however you want to say it. And it's been packaged in so many different ways. But it's all a load of scubala. It's a Greek word. Look it up. It has caused so much damage. And I just want to leave you with this. I think it's one of the most beautiful images of the relationship between us and our Creator and what heaven can actually look like. And it's found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Jesus says, Look, 
I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will share a meal, and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus doesn't text you and say, hey, I'm hungry. What are you having? I may come over. It's not, the meal is not the point. In fact, the, Christ, the religion of Christian, Christianity has gotten very good at arguing the semantics. Well, what is the food? Well, I think it's steak. No, steak's too fatty. I think it's chicken. Well, you know, he maybe he's coming in, you know, you know, maybe it's lobster. No, dude, it's not lobster, you know, definitely, and all this. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's settle on something else. What about the door? Is it an oak door? Or is it, or is it a redwood door? Does it have a knocker on it or a doorbell? Does it, is it one of those cheap, hollow doors that you get from Home Depot? It doesn't matter what the door is or what the food is. The important thing is that the creator of the universe is knocking on the door and he wants to come in and fellowship with you as a friend and invite you to his banquet of eternity in a holy city where he is at the center and that we get to experience the original vision for our lives, for God's creation, to have an unbuffered relationship with him and a restored relationship with uh, with creation. You guys pray with me? Dear God, I just, um, I don't know, at times I just want to throw myself at your feet and just ask for your forgiveness for my part in ever presenting heaven and hell as a transactional deal and taking you really out of the picture. God, I just pray that we can just desperately want to be transformed by a relationship with you and that our great anticipation, our great hope is to finally be back in a restored ideal state of an unbuffered relationship with you and a restored relationship with your creation. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.